you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation, um, chapter 20. Lord willing, we'll finish out uh, Revelation chapter 20 um, by looking at the final five verses here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Um, my final four verses, I guess. Um, and uh, so uh, we, we want to take a look at these and see um, as we prepare to get into um, chapter 21 and, and 22 and finish out our study in Revelation, we want to uh, we want to look at the final judgment or the, the great judgment. Um, so Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So uh, if you are physically able to do so, please, one more time, stand with me and let us read in reverence the word of God. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. I pray we would hear the word of the Lord tonight. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in, his book, in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works." And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, may you now add your blessing to the reading of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Um, it, when, I was in, when I was in Bible college, I was tasked with doing a, um, a, a report on a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was one of the great missionaries of uh, years gone by. And the one thing that stuck with me and struck me was the story of his conversion. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of his conversion, but the story of his conversion goes, he, he relates it to us, uh, that on the evening in, in or around 1808, um, Adoniram Judson was, uh, was an unconverted man, and he had come to lodge in an inn. And he did this while in the next room a man was struggling in the throes of death. Uh, Judson was a, was a brilliant student um, at Providence College. and Unfortunately, he had become entangled into, in thoughts of the Enlightenment and uh, of, of rationality and, and reason and the, the superiority of these things. Uh, and so he had, um, he had adopted a more of a, a, um, a, a deistic view of life, that God exists, but, you know, he doesn't, doesn't really involve himself in anything. He's just sort of there, and, and he sort of wound it up, and he sort of let it go, right, um, was, was more of his view of things. Um, however, on his 20th birthday, um, Judson told his distraught parents that he had, and, and on his 20th birthday, he told his, his parents that he had abandoned the Christian faith. And as you can imagine, this was not taken well by his parents, who were faithful believers. Um, but uh, shortly after this, um, he, came, he came in the evening in 1808 to lodge next to a man who was dying. And it was during this time that... This man did not die quietly. Through the moans 
and the wailings and the restlessness and the struggling of this man all night long, right? Judson began to ask himself, right, um, what, what is it about this man's dying that is so frightening? Um, he began to, to dismiss or try to dismiss the anxiety and the concerns about, um, about uh, death and, and everything else. And he even began to ask the question, but he began to ask the question as the night wore on, why was this man struggling so desperately bad? And then he began to ask himself, well, what about me? What will happen when I die? So by the dawn, uh, by early morning, the sounds had died, and he, was, uh, he later found out that the man had passed. The innkeeper told him that he was passed. And he simply, <clears throat> he simply inquired of the man next, next to him. The innkeeper just simply said, he is gone, poor fellow. And uh, the doctor said he would probably not survive the night. Do you know who he was, Judson asked. Oh, yes, a young man. From the college in Providence came the reply, and the name of the man was none other than the name of his friend who had talked him into accepting his deistic worldview, Jacob Ames. Judson was absolutely distraught in that inn at that moment. Hell, literally, Judson recalls, opened and struck a blow to his heart. Although Judson wasn't immediately converted, it did make such an impact on Adoniram Judson that God would ultimately use it to raise up one of the greatest Baptist missionaries who would ever exist through the pains and the sufferings of others as he thought on the judgment of their sin. Well, what does that have to do with our text? Well, that has everything to do with our text because our text is all about judgment. Our text is all about judgment, isn't it? Uh, as we read, as we opened in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, we see, John says, uh, a great white throne. Now, this is, in, this is in complete contrast to what we've seen prior to this. Remember what I said last week. There is a, there is a judgment whereby we as Christians approach God's mercy seat, his, his throne of justice. But for us, it's a mercy seat because we are in Christ and Christ has already made our path um, acceptable to God. We are, we, are, we are made acceptable to God and because of Jesus Christ. And so we find, as we come to the throne of God, we find the, the Bema seat, the mercy seat, the grace seat of Christ. But those who are not in Christ, as in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we find that they don't find a mercy seat. They find a judgment seat. They find a, 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 a great white throne. And remember what I said last time, you know, growing up, um, last week, I think I said, you know, growing up, I always heard, you know, as a Christian, uh, you know, you don't want to be at the great white throne judgment. But the problem is that there's no reason for us to doubt that Christ's seat has or his throne has changed. This is the same throne that was mentioned back in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So what makes the difference? Christ makes all the difference. You, we, we either meet him as the Savior and the merciful one, or we meet him as our judge. And so um, John tells us here in John chapter 20, or Revelation, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20, 
that we are all going to meet. We are all going to meet our maker. Uh, We are all going to meet our judge and we are all going to stand before him and we are all going to we are all going to face final judgment either in Christ or apart from Christ. You know, it always it always makes it always makes me laugh when I go back home to the mountains because you'll see um, you'll see these big uh, markers, these placards, right, that are just standing out there. It says uh, prepare to meet thy God, you know. Uh, and then there, there, there are lots of different, lots of these different markers all over the mountains, uh, uh, from West Virginia all the way down into Kentucky and Tennessee, wherever you go. There's these giant markers everywhere. It's like prepare to meet thy God. Well, the reality is we do need to prepare to meet our God. We do need to prepare to meet our God. We will either meet Him as our advocate and our defender, or we will meet Him as a judge. And as the lion of, not as the lamb of God, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John says here that he saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Uh, The Apostle Paul actually warned that God has fixed a day. In Acts chapter 17 verse 31, he has fixed a day upon which he is going to judge the world. Jesus defined this day as the day of his return. Uh, when it's Jesus himself speaking in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's interesting, isn't it? When Christ comes, he will sit on his glorious throne. And Christ, again, will either be merciful to us because of his grace or uh, because we have run to him in, in grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and we will either find mercy or we will find justice. It's interesting that uh, whether we are talking about uh, um, this, and this holds true for uh, whether we're talking about uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or any other creed um, that, that readily uh, throughout church history has asserted that Jesus will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. This has been historically the, what the Christian church has confessed throughout our existence. We have confessed that Christ Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And it's interesting how John begins this section, right? Previously, it is, it is one of judgment, but judgment upon the dragon and the false prophet and the beast and all of those other things, right? They're talking about, talking about, these, talking about these, these entities and beings that have, have raised themselves up against Christ and have sought to, not, um, to, to resist his reign and rule. And now uh, God comes to the subjects, his subjects, in verses 11 through 15. And this is the, this is the idea here. And matter of fact, John says here in uh, John, uh, Revelation 20, 11, he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. I don't know if you know this, but John was also, this, this goes back to, John, uh, to Revelation chapter 4. Remember when, when Revelation chapter 4 in verse 2 where <clears throat> John was invited to come up here. Well, again, we have John uh, being invited back into this presence of this throne room, uh, this place where now judgment will be established and it, 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 is, it, is, it is fulfillment of the, of the great vision. And it is interesting that John uses the phrase great, isn't it? He uses the phrase great. And I saw a great white throne. Why would John use the word megas? Why would he say 
Why would he say a great, literally a massive, right? It's the, the, it's the word from which we get the word mega from, right? Uh, it is a massive proportional throne, right? And so why does John use the, use the adjective of, of megas or great? And it's funny that if, if you go throughout the book of Revelation, he does this 80 times in reference. He uses the word 80 times. But here he uses it of the throne. And why does he do this? Because what John is explaining to us is that this throne before which all, all who are not in Christ have appeared um, or will appear, um, they need to understand that this is a, a larger-than-life event. This is a larger-than-life event that's going to take place. Um, John portrays God's throne in, in dimensions that are, are massive because he wants people to grasp the, and fathom the heavenly proportions of, of, this, um, of this, this throne, right? This is, this is not a wimpy throne. This is not a small throne. This is, not a, uh, this is a massive throne upon which Jesus sits because he is the sovereign ruler and, reign, and reigns over all creation. And it's a white throne because Jesus clearly judges how? In purity. He judges in holiness. He judges, he judges with, with great, um, not as other judges, right? Other judges are, are known to, or can, 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 be, can be gotten to, so to speak, right? Uh, they can be corrupted through various means and, and reasons. But here, Jesus' throne exudes the fact, it radiates the fact that Jesus judges in perfect purity and in perfect holiness and in incorruptible righteousness, in incorruptible righteousness. Now, if you are, if you are, if you have your theological lenses on or your biblical lenses on, this should really drive us to another scene. It should drive us back because it's meant to drive us back to another scene in the Old Testament. And I'm sure maybe you already are thinking about this passage. It's one of the only other passages uh, in the Bible where, um, where we get a glimpse here. And that's in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to what Isaiah says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train, that's the train or his trailing edge of his robe, filled the temple. It filled the temple because it represented his glory, it represented his honor, it represented his majesty, it represented everything that he is and the glory of all that he is. John wants us to grasp the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness and the grace, but also the absolute purity of our Savior. And this is what this throne does. It, it exudes majesty and authority. It exudes purity and, and moral purity and absolute holiness and an incorruptible righteousness. Now, John doesn't here in Revelation chapter 20 really specify who is the one sitting on the throne, but um, there's no reason for us to see here any, any, anyone else other than Jesus sitting upon the throne. There's no reason for us to see anyone, anyone else. And why do I say that? Well, I, I think that John here draws, or this, this, is, this vision is drawing from another Old Testament passage. 
if you want, you can turn there with me. But in Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, in Revelation, in Daniel chapter 7, um, I, think, I think this passage very much is, is drawing from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, um, where uh, it says this, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancients of, the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. This is, the, this is the image that John is drawing from. I think, I, I think the Lord is drawing from as he's revealing this to John. Um, as I've said, you know, if Revelation can be accused of anything, it, it can be accused of plagiarizing the Old Testament in large sections. I mean, there, there is constantly uh, fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment of Old Testament passages over and over again. And John here doesn't want us to miss either the Isaiah 6 or the Daniel 7 re- uh, relationship for us. He wants us to see that this is something that, that <clears throat> is settled and will happen uh, without a doubt, and that King Jesus is going to judge both the living and the dead. He is going to judge the living and the dead because the Father has given to Jesus all judgment. Isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter 5? Jesus said to, to the apostles and, and to, the, to those standing around that the Father has given to him uh, the, the right um, all of judgment, and not just any judgment, but all judgment, he says in John chapter 5. All ju- verse 22, all judgment has been given to the Son. And that's why I say I don't, I don't see any reason here to see anyone else other than King Jesus sitting on the throne. He has put all of his enemies down. He, the gospel has plowed the nations. They are now squarely under his feet. He has, he has been victorious over the nations and over the dragon, the, this, this being called the dragon and Satan. And he has uh, sovereignly exercised his right of rule and reign. And, and it's interesting that that the Lord Jesus pictured here what? Here, the same way as he is pictured in Hebrews. It's interesting. You say, well, now, what do you mean, Pastor, that he's, he's seated here? Well, it's, it, he is seated in a different sense, but he is still seated. You say, well, what do you mean? I said, I said in Hebrews chapter, chapter, uh, chapter 12, we're told that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Did he just sit on a stool? No, he sat on a throne. He sat on his throne. His rule and reign is now, and it is now being revealed. It is complete. It is completed, but it, uh, the, the reality is continuing to be revealed throughout the nations, throughout the ages. And this great throne realizes, uh, causes us to realize his absolute uh, ability and right to rule and to reign and to judge the nations. And so we see here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, that, that, that there's something else added here, though, isn't there? And he says, And I saw a great white throne on him and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. It's a striking statement, isn't it? That, 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 that this, this king who is sitting on this throne is holy and pure and righteous and good and incorruptible, and he is, the, he is the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah who rules and reigns righteously over the nations. He has put them down. He is the Ancient of Days who has sat down, clothed in white, white uh, as snow. Uh, and, and in the midst of all of this, we are told 
that from his presence the earth and the sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And it's interesting that this, this imagery actually connects to earlier language in the book of Revelation, and it's actually tied to the return of Jesus. Now, just hang with me here, and I'll show you what I mean. If you go to Revelation chapter 6, if you go back to Revelation chapter 6, in verses 12 through 14, you'll actually find something very intriguing here. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. And it says, And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island was moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in dens in the rocks of the mountains." And he said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So John is actually re, 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 reminding us here in Revelation chapter 20 of, of what he has already told us, what he's already seen in Revelation chapter 6. He's reminding us that heaven and earth itself is, uh, is, is, is in some kind of uh, upheaval and results in, in God being absolutely majestic and holy, uh, that his, his throne is brought into, the, into, the, into a fallen world. And, and tr in truth, it's the prophet Micah who spoke, who spoke about this. Matter of fact, in Micah 1, 3 through 4, listen to what he says. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. This is all eschatology, this is all eschatological language, this is all language of, of the judgment of God, of what God's going to do in the last day. Right? He's going to do in the day on the day of judgment. Why? Right? Why? Well, the reason for the fleeing of creation, um, and I probably have a little bit of a different view than, than most on this, um, this language of, of fleeing away, um, is that of is that of due to transgression and sins, um, and what I mean by that is simply this: I, I believe that this is simply a way of John to let us know, uh, to speak of, of 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 recreation, of of a new of a a a a, a heaven and an earth that that has been purified and is purified from its transgression and its sin, that which it now groans for that which it now it now seeks after that which it now pleads for is finally fulfilled that is that the the that uh, uh, judgment has come everything has been made new and God is glorified that creation itself and 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 I, because I don't believe for one second that this is simply a, 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 a pleading or that creation is pleading for a mercy killing I think that's utterly ridiculous Creation isn't pleading for a mercy killing. Creation is pleading for all things to be made new and to be remade. Creation isn't pleading to be killed and put out of its misery. Creation is pleading that God would, God would deal with the transgressions and the unrighteousness that it has been forced to deal with because of our sin as those who watched over creation, those who 
those who were called to, to be in God's stead as, as, as his co-regents within, uh, within creation. And because of our sin, creation itself was also subjected to sin. It now groans and moans and wails and weeps and seeks God's transforming grace to be abundantly made upon, to come abundantly upon it. And not to put it out of its misery by killing it, but to put it out of its misery by making all things new. By making all things new. This is, this is recreation language. This is the language of God's purifying the nations. Because the, the, the world as it stands can't stand before the face of God. Why? Because it is sinful and it is subject to transgression and sins. Because of the earlier curse of corruption, right? But now, now in Christ, we see that literally all things are made new. All things are made new. And it's, 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 an, it's an amazing reality for us as we look at this passage. Um, and, and it's an amazing reality as we, as we think through all of these things together, as we think through what this language entails for us, that creation itself is going to be judged, that creation itself is going to be, going to be judged. Because part of, part of my problem in seeing here that creation is just simply going to be done away with and God's going to create everything new, does God really care that little about the world that he created? Does God really care that little for this world? Does God call us really to care that little about this world? Now, certainly we shouldn't be, our affections shouldn't be tied to this world or the world system. But God truly does care for his creation. God truly does care about how we live in this world. God wants us to build systems and, 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 and things that, that, that are not as um, burdensome upon this creation. He doesn't call us to decimate that which he has given to us. He has called us to make to, to, to exercise authority over those things. And God isn't waiting for the day that he can wipe out the dogs and the cats and the birds and the bees and everything and be like, ha-ha, well, that's over with, thank God. You know, that's not the purpose. The purpose is, again, to put, a, put creation out of its misery, but to make all things new. And then we move on to the scope of this final judgment. The scope of this final judgment. Well, we see here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, we see that he says this. He says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So, John says that even though he sees within this vision this, uh, this, this great white throne, he also sees the, the, the purpose of this great white throne, which is, again, judgment. Uh, and John emphasizes here a very general resurrection, doesn't he? Um, he, he, he gives us a very general term, in general terms, this idea of a, of a, a general resurrection that occurs and that happens after, after everything is said, after everything is done. And this is why he says, I saw the small and the great stand before the throne. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter our place in this world. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter about our skin colors or, or, or ethnicities or anything else. God says that there is coming a time when absolutely everyone is going to stand in judgment before him. Every human being who has ever lived will stand in judgment before God. And this judgment stands as the final act of our current history. It stands as the final act of our current history. 
whereby Jesus Christ is once and for all declared universally King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one to whom all creation, men, women, boys, girls, it doesn't matter, will bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ is Lord, and then they will give an account for their lives. Right? Jesus himself said in John 5, 28, An hour is coming when all who, hear, who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Jesus is very clear, right? I know there's a lot of debate out there about how many, how many resurrections are there going to be? Are there going to be one? Is there going to be two? Is there going to be five? Is there going to be ten? Is there going to be a hundred? You know, there's all kinds of speculation out there. But, but I think as we look at the New Testament, particularly Revelation, I, I, I struggle to see the fact that there is anything other than one general resurrection. And that is the Lord's universal working. Uh, this, this general resurrection of all the dead who stand before God in His judgment. The universality of His resurrection, right? Uh, chapter 20, right? Verse 13, as we'll see in just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> it doesn't matter even where, how they died or where they died. You know, I get people who ask me all the time, well, what about those people that, 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 that died in a fire and were cremated or their bodies, uh, you know, were, <clears throat> were destroyed uh, in some explosion, you know? Uh, well, here's what Jesus says in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their words. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about their body. Now, certainly we shouldn't desecrate our bodies uh, in death, but um, Christians always saw, throughout history, Christians saw um, death and, as well as burial as, as, a sacred, uh, as a sacred thing, right? And so we have much of the, uh, we have much of the catacombs in Rome, thanks to Christians. Uh, and and their, our ideas, uh, Christian ideas of the importance and the sacredness of, of burial. But no matter where we die, no matter how we die, no matter what, Jesus says it doesn't matter. We're all going to stand before him. We're all going to do it. I mean, it's, there's no question as to whether or not we will or will not uh, stand before him. We will. And it is interesting here because he says in verse 12, doesn't he? He said, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So the scope of the final judgment is this. Every word, every action, every activity that we have ever done has been recorded in those books. And... Those who are not in Christ will be judged based upon those actions, based upon those activities. Because ultimately, why? Because their name wasn't found in the book of life, and by their own actions, those who are apart from Christ condemn themselves. They condemn their lives. Say, well, I'm a good person. Really? Really? Well, it says here that on this date, at this time, you did this, and then you did this, and then you did this, and then you said this, and then you thought this, and then you defrauded so-and-so, and then you thought about this, and then you thought about that. And so they're going to be judged apart from the mercy of, gra- of grace, apart from the mercy of Christ, apart from the grace of God that has been given to us in Christ for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. 
there's not going to be anyone who can say to God, but God, I am a really good person because God will respond by reading from the books and say, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. There is none good. No, not one. Our hope as Christians are in the goodness of another. Our hope is in the goodness of another. The goodness and the righteousness of Christ that is then imputed to us in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we see this, this, this idea of the universality of this resurrection here in John 20, 13, right? That the dead, <coughs> excuse me, death, hell, and or Hades, death and Hades, which is the, the view of, of the underworld, uh, um, uh, of, of the holding place of the dead, right? Uh, they, they give up their, their, um, their dead, and the waters and everywhere else give up their dead. And these places hold the, 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 the soul in death. They will yield up their, they will yield up these people. And they will all stand before the judgment throne, the judgment seat of Christ. And it is interesting that John emphasizes there will be no distinctions. There will be no distinctions. God doesn't judge based upon who you are. You're not going to be able, we won't be able to say, do you know who I am? God will say, yes, of course, I know exactly who you are. Let me show you who, who you are. Let me read a couple of things from these books for you. Because I know exactly who you are. And this is why... We must look to Christ. This is why our hope must be solely and firmly found in Jesus Christ. This is why you and I cannot have our hope in anyone or anything else. It's all shifting sand. It's all empires of dirt apart from Christ. It's all empires of sand apart from Christ. And John tells us here, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we are. Not one descendant of Adam and Eve is going to be missing on this day. And this will be God's final word. This will be God's final word on the personal, immortal destiny of every single soul who has ever lived. And they will either meet him as the Lamb of God who has taken away their sin, or they will meet him as their righteous judge. And this is the message that we must be careful to proclaim. This is the message we must be careful to preach. This is the message that we must be careful to, to, let, to, to call sinners to repentance for. It, it, it's great. It's great. Look, I, look I, it's, it's great that, that, that we can have all kinds of, 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 of things going on in our lives. But the most important thing must remain the most important thing, and that is God's gospel. The gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ must remain the central point of the church and it must remain the central point of our families and of our lives. It must remain the core of our thought and being. You know, I used to think, I'll close with an illustration. I used to think when I heard this passage preached as a kid, my dad would preach or some other pastor would preach and they would preach on this text. I used to always get so scared. And here's why I would always get so scared. I would always get scared because I always imagined this jumbotron, right? 
and I'm standing before God, and there's this jumbotron, like at the, like at, uh, uh, like at the Reds game, right? And and there are all God's going to say, oh, here, look at all what you did, right? And I used to be so scared. I thought, oh my goodness, God's going to show all my sin to everybody. But you know, the, the older I've gotten, and the more I've understood God's God's grace, the more I understand again. But that's not how he treats his children. God does not treat his children in that sense. God certainly does call us into account when we sin, and God certainly does, does judge us, or, or, or he, he chastises us when we go astray. But the, but the point of God doing that isn't to, isn't to belittle us. It's, it's not, it's not to, to bring about the last day when God can have a really good laugh at our expense, and we're just a ball, a, a puddle of, of weeping tears down there at his feet, and God's laughing like, ha-ha, I got you. That's not how we meet him as Christians. We meet him. Yes, we meet him, but we meet him in mercy and grace. This is why we must, our firm foundation must be Christ and Christ alone. And this must be why we look to Jesus and we think only of Jesus and not our own self-righteousness. Those who are found and grounded in their own self-righteousness meet him as the uncompromising judge. But Christian, for us, there is no more condemnation There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now. We meet him as our our Lamb of God, as our conquering King, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has mercy upon us because he truly has had mercy upon upon us. So let us flee to him and run to him for the assurance of our salvation. Let us flee to him and run to him for the assurance of our salvation. But not just our assurance but also find great mercy in his tender care. He is truly like a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he not only leads us, but at times he carries us. He carries us and he tends us carefully and graciously. And let us look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And let us look to him with hope. Let us look to him in faith. And let us look to him awaiting the day in which Christ will make all things new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together in the word. We, our prayer now is that you would be glorified. And God, uh, as, we, as we continue to, to look at in the, in the next week of, of your judgment, but God, our prayer is that we would, we would see you not as our, 